Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard. I am located in Payson, Utah at Orchard Hills Bible Church. I am uh, pastoring here at this wonderful fellowship. If you are in the Payson, Utah area, would love for you to join us anytime. We, we have the Bible and we have Jesus. So if that's what you're into, come check us out. We'd love to greet you, to talk about uh, you know, whatever you'd like to talk about. No questions are off the table at our church, so come join us. We'd love to see you. This week in the schedule for the Come Follow Me Sunday School curriculum that is produced by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we come to the week of April 17th to the 23rd. Matthew 18 and Luke chapter 10 are the uh, two chapters for this week, so we're, we're making our way through the Gospels here. And uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew 18 on forgiveness today, an oft-quoted verse uh, here at the start of our passage from Peter uh, gets us going. So let's go ahead and head on over to Matthew 18, starting at verse 21. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? So, let's just stop there with the with that question, because you may think it sounds ridiculous, which it does, actually. Peter asks Jesus, How often shall my brother sin against me, and I turn around and forgive him? Seven, uh, up to seven times? And it sounds ridiculous, of course, because seven's not a very high number. Uh, seven's pretty low, actually. Now, if you think about your life and how forgiving you are, if you were really honest with yourself, you may come to the conclusion, I don't know if I've ever forgiven anyone seven times. <laughs> so maybe it's not that low of a number after all, huh? But but what's interesting, culturally speaking, behind this question that Peter asks is that the rabbis of the day would teach that you could forgive a brother up to three times, and then after the third time, there are no guarantees, basically. That was, that was kind of what was in the mind of the Jews of the day. So Peter is asking this question, how often should I forgive him? Up to seven? Like, that's over twice as much as what people think. What do you think, Lord? Well, Jesus, of course, doesn't respond with yes or no. Um... He says, I do not say to you, this is verse 22, Jesus replying, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So uh, people are always looking for a yes or no answer from Jesus. Like, hey, can you just affirm what I'm thinking? Uh, There are many people who go around in life just looking for people to affirm all their let's say, questionable decisions. And I think Peter is doing that a little bit here, just looking for an affirmation uh, for Jesus to say, yes, Peter, that's a great idea. You're so smart, Peter. Yes, up to seven times. That's great. Wow. Well, um, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, "I I don't say that. I'm not telling you up to seven times, but instead I'm telling you 490 times. I tell you, 7 times 70, 490. Which, of course, the point isn't 
that Jesus teaches, oh, we should have a, a running counter with everybody in our lives where we have little uh, tick marks counting up to 490. And then after that, all bets are off. No guarantees. You sin against me 491 times, and I'm coming for you, buddy. No, 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 no. That's not Jesus' teaching here, of course. That would be, uh, boy, that would be quite, pretty hard to manage in the years before smartphones. How would you keep track of how many times someone has sinned against you? Jesus' point is it's not even worth counting because you are to be a forgiving person. If you are somebody who has come to know the forgiveness of God, then you are to be a forgiving person. So Jesus doesn't just leave it at that. He explains what he means in the forthcoming parable. He explains that it's not a strict number you should have in your head, so that way you can flip from being forgiving person to being harsh person who doesn't forgive. Instead, you should live your life continually as a forgiving person. And he shares this parable to illustrate that. This parable, like all parables, does not have a one-to-one correspondence with every element in it accurately representing a theological truth. There is a main point in every parable, and the other elements of the illustration aren't meant to be carried out to every single corresponding spiritual truth from it, okay, or spiritual reality. Uh, You are supposed to look for the main point and embrace the main point. Like an example would be in Luke 18, where Jesus is telling the parable of the, uh, the harsh judge who wasn't doing justice for the widow and the just, uh, the, sorry, the widow kept going over and over again to the judge's house, annoying him until he finally heard her case and showed her justice. So is the point in that parable, as Jesus is talking about the importance of prayer in that, is the point of that parable that God is just really harsh and doesn't like to listen to our prayers and you have to annoy him and twist his arm before he will help you? No, of course not. The point is we are to be persistent in prayer as that widow was persistent. And Jesus even makes this known when he finishes the parable. He says, uh, you know, look, you've got a wicked judge. How much more your father is going to hear you, your heavenly father is going to hear you. So you need to just pay attention at the, to the main point and sometimes there are multiple points being made in a parable. That's that's totally true. But don't try to take something that wasn't meant to correspond to a spiritual reality and force it to correspond, okay? That's just a warning before we get into this parable. It's a, an aspect of hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation, all right? Well, let's jump into it. Jesus tells the parable. He says, starting in verse 23, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one owed him 10,000 talents and was brought to him. Since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, 
pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Wow. All right. Well, a couple of terms need to be defined, of course. You may have noticed that we're talking about talents and denarii. Well, uh, talents were worth more than denarii. And we have 10,000 talents being compared to 100 denarii. So two different types of currency and two very different amounts. 10,000 talents of money at that time, I mean, talents was likely a uh, measurement of gold. We're talking probably well over a million dollars here. So we'll just say, for the sake of it, a million dollars. A hundred denarii would come out to, in our day and age, somewhere around a buck fifty or two dollars. We'll say two dollars. Okay? So think of it this way. There was a man who owed a million dollars to another man, a, a king. And the king was willing to throw him into a situation where he would be sold along with his family, and he, the king, would receive all the profit from that, and he would get the cost of this man's life add, uh, put toward the debt that was owed. So that's what this king was willing to do. But when the man begged and pleaded, the king not only said, okay, well, uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to throw you into the market. You're not going to be sold. But the king forgave him a million-dollar debt. Wild, super wild. And it's probably quite a bit more than that. We could say maybe $10 million, But we'll just go with a million, all right? Forgave him a million bucks. And you can imagine that kind of scenario today, the first part of it, that is, where some businessmen get themselves into just really deeply uh sad situations where they're owing large sums of money and they can't pay it back. Uh there are probably lots of people around us all the time who owe large sums of money that they can't pay back. You look at all the things that people have in their driveways and the types of houses they live in and how many credit cards they have and they probably owe large sums of money that they can't ever pay back. So that part of the parable is obviously easily relatable. What is more difficult to imagine is that someone, especially a king, who was owed all of this money, would just forgive the debt. Let's uh, look at that again. It says here in uh, verse 27, the Lord of the slave, 
felt compassion, number one, so he was moved in his heart, released him, number two, so decided, no, I'm not going to have you and your family sold, and then three, forgave him the debt. Like, even the slave who fell to the ground and was begging and pleading, surely he was absolutely shocked by this outcome, even though it's the exact outcome he wanted, the best outcome he ever could have imagined. He had to be absolutely shocked. I mean, this is a shocking amount of forgiveness that was granted simply because the slave asked for it. So the king didn't say, well, okay, here's what we'll do. A, B, C, one, two, three, X, Y, Z, whatever. Here are the steps that you can go through that on the other end of that, you'll get forgiveness. That's not what is presented here. What is presented here is a king up front in response to a man's mere pleading saying, all is forgiven. All right, so have that in mind. Keep that in mind. Well, then in that second scenario, you've got the man who was forgiven a million dollars, who was owed two dollars. One of his slaves owed him a couple bucks. And apparently this first slave wasn't doing uh, so hot in money management. He wasn't making wise decisions with his money. He needed those two dollars. So he got really mad when this person could not pay him back two bucks. He needed it. He not only seized the man, but it says he began to choke him, laying his hands on him. I mean, this is something that uh, didn't even happen that we have in the narrative anyway, that didn't happen to him when he owed a king a million dollars. Well, here he is with one of his low-level employees, you could say, and he really wants his $2 back. So this slave does the same thing, begs, pleads, uh, vows, have patience with me, and I will repay you. Um, This is like the same thing, right? But the slave is unwilling, that that one who was forgiven a million bucks, he's now unwilling to forgive this guy a $2 debt, and he throws him in prison for it until he should pay back what was owed. So uh, the response that we get from this slave is one of maybe some cognitive dissonance, you could say. A man who was forgiven a million dollars refuses to forgive another man two dollars. And he's the clear antagonist in the story. There's no question that this man is out of line and this is wrong. As the disciples are hearing this parable from Jesus, they're following along saying, okay, yeah, we see. This is this is bad. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Well, now it all comes full circle in that the one, the king, who forgave him a million dollars, hears about it and summons for him and calls him wicked. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Now, there it is again. We're highlighting how this man received forgiveness. He pleaded with the Lord pleaded with the king. He wasn't going through religious steps to obtain forgiveness. He was empty-handed, and he pleaded with the king and received forgiveness. 
And he asked the question, you could word it this way. So by necessity, shouldn't you have had mercy on this guy who owed you $2 in the same way that I had mercy on you? The obvious answer is yes. Well, he was moved with anger. The king was, handed him over to the torturers, and he was put in jail. And so it's like justice, full circle here now. So this guy's not getting away scot-free. He now has to go pay that debt. And uh, Jesus says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each does not forgive his brother from your heart. Okay. Well, um, let's consider a few things here. We want to walk away from this passage with the appropriate application. And we can start by saying that forgiveness is obtained through uh, pleading with the one to whom you owe all things, God himself. Now, this isn't pleading like bargaining, you know, that one of those stages of depression is bargaining, where you say to God, um, if you, you know, will do this, then I'll do this, or or um, if I do this, will you then do that? And you're, you're kind of setting up a, a deal with God. You're trying to make some sort of a situation here where he will bless you based on your works. Well, that's not how forgiveness is obtained. We don't bargain with God, but we do plead with God. We agree with God about our condition, that we are sinful, that we cannot remedy our own condition, that we are desperately wicked and unable to fix our standing, to change our heart. We recognize that. And so we go to God empty-handed, without works, without anything that we could bring to the table except sin that requires, that, that makes salvation necessary. That's a... Jonathan Edwards' quote, I believe, that I just butchered. We contribute nothing to our salvation except for the sin that makes it necessary. I think that's what he said. So we come to him empty-handed, and and we ask him to forgive us on not the basis of our works, but on the basis of his grace, his mercy that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't find the application of this passage to be... uh, Let's just look at this last verse, verse 35. We don't find the application to be, well, I have to go forgive a bunch of people, and then I will get forgiveness. That is not the application. That's not what Jesus was teaching here. That's not consistent with the parable itself. That's not where your mind should go. Your mind should not be, oh, I'm supposed to go be a forgiving person so that I can then get my sins forgiven. That is like just not the teaching. In fact, Jesus, in this same book, Matthew's Gospel, he taught the exact opposite of that. He says when he instituted his supper, we call it communion. Some of you may call it sacrament. It says in Matthew 26, starting in verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on 
until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, uh, right here in verse 28 is what I want you to see, that Jesus makes reference to his blood. That's what's represented by the wine, his blood that will be poured out, his blood of the covenant, the new covenant. And it is poured out, he will die, for many, for the purpose of forgiving sins. So how do you get your sins forgiven? It's not by going around and forgiving everybody else. And then God says, wow, you're so good at forgiving. You know what? I'm going to forgive you. Not how that works. Not what Jesus is teaching. That's not the point. We obtained uh, forgiveness of sins. Those of us who believe have obtained forgiveness of sins through the work of Jesus Christ. And anyone who will obtain forgiveness of sins will do so through the work of Christ. It is because Jesus died on a cross in our place for our sins and rose again that anybody has the opportunity to be forgiven. And that opportunity is seized when a person trusts not in his own works, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We, we get the forgiveness of sins and total assurance of being pardoned of all of our transgressions when we believe in Jesus we can know that we have eternal life. When we put all of our trust in what Jesus has done, we receive the free gift of everlasting life. That's a promise. And so it's not about you going around and forgiving people to climb the mountain, and at the top is forgiveness. No, no, no. A person comes to God empty-handed and is forgiven. So what's the application then? What's the application that we walk away with? Because after all, Jesus said, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you. Well, what does he mean by the same? Uh, Remember, we're talking about this man who was forgiven a million dollars, who went off and was harsh with a low-level employee, and then the king who forgave him found out about it and threw him in jail and required him to pay back what he owed. So what's the same thing that that Jesus says his heavenly Father will do to his disciples. Well, certainly he doesn't mean that his heavenly father is going to throw them in jail. He's not saying, obviously, I mean, so I'm just starting with the most basic thing. You're saying, yeah, duh, Jeremy, I know this. Well, I know that you know this, but let's just make sure we're on the same page here, okay, and get our bearings, as it were. Uh, Jesus isn't teaching that God the Father is going to find all the unforgiving disciples, all the unforgiving believers, and throw them into a jail and say, well, now I'm not going to forgive you until you make sure that you have forgiven all the people in your life. That's just not what's going to happen, obviously. It hasn't happened for 2,000 years. So we can rule out this this literal idea. Again, we're in a parable. We're not looking to make application to a spiritual reality where there isn't that intention. So, so we're not going to take the parable that direction. We're not going to go there. However, there is a direct correlation, correspondence that Jesus brings to bear here, saying his father, his heavenly father, corresponds to the king in the story, and he will in some disciplinary way, get the attention of his disciples, rebuke, admonish, correct, whatever you want to put in there, his disciples, his people, 
who refuse to reflect his forgiveness in the way that they handle other people. That is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Because remember, all of this started with Peter saying, how often should I, how, how many times rather, should I forgive my, my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus' whole point here is, look, if you say you are a believer, a disciple of, of mine, if you're saying that you belong to God, if you are identifying with somebody who is on good terms with God now because he's been forgiven, then you have no room whatsoever to go out and to be harsh with people in a way that does not reflect God. You are now obligated, it is now necessary for you to go out and to reflect God's heart in your relationships and to show the forgiveness of God in in the way that you deal with people. That's Jesus's big point. I mean, obviously, he didn't say all those words. Those are my words, not his words. But I would say that's an accurate summation of what Jesus is teaching in that in that parable. And so um, we have to just make sure we're getting the point of the parable and not going beyond what is written and not twisting the word to say something that that was never intended, that Jesus never intended. This same idea is reiterated in Ephesians 4 when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians at Ephesus saying, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and here it is, it was all leading up to this, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Great verse connected directly to Matthew 18 that we are to forgive each other just as, there's our correspondence language, just as God in the work of Christ has also forgiven you. How has God in Christ forgiven you? Well, we were just talking about that uh, with Jesus saying, this is the blood of the covenant that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We are forgiven not on the basis of any works, but we are on the uh, forgiven on the basis, well, I guess you could say, sorry, brain being is being scattered. We are forgiven on the basis of Jesus' works. We are not forgiven on the basis of any of our works. And so we are forgiven by grace through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So when we think about this idea of forgiving each other, if you are a Christian, we forgive each other on the basis of the forgiveness we have experienced, which was a gracious forgiveness that did not require something of the other person other than the person saying, would you please forgive me? Confessing wrongdoing and asking for forgiveness. That's it. So we, uh, as Christians, are not to be harsh people. We are to be gospel people. The gospel is not harsh. The gospel is inviting. The gospel is uh, full of, of grace and love, mercy, compassion, kindness, and gentleness. That's what the gospel is all about. And this lesson, then, uh, is for the Christian. 
what, what Jesus's parable in Matthew 18 is all about is a lesson for the Christian. The one who has experienced the forgiveness of God is to go out and to forgive others. So now just wrapping up, how, how should you respond to this teaching? Number one has to be considering, are you a Christian? Have you been forgiven by God through the gospel, the true biblical gospel, not another gospel? There are other gospels. Uh, Paul talked about this in Galatians 1. Even if an angel from heaven preaches another gospel, he should be accursed. So have you been forgiven on the basis of the gospel, the true gospel? That's number one. And if the answer to that is no, then let's work on that. Okay, let's fix that by not conjuring up your own religious works, but by going to God and asking Him for forgiveness, confessing you are a sinner, and asking Him to save you on the basis of what Jesus has done. Number two, if you pass that one, though, if you say, yeah, I'm a believer, number two, then, is are you a forgiving believer? Are you known in your relationships by your long-suffering, your patience, your forgiveness toward others? Or are you known as somebody... Oh, ooh, you don't want to you don't want to cross the line with her or or you don't want to set him off. Uh you don't want to you know uh push it with him because he has a breaking point and you're about to reach it. I mean, did did you notice in the parable that Jesus shared about the anger there that the unjust slave or the ungracious, I should say, ungracious slave had where he not just called the man who owed him $2 over, but he began to choke him. He was choking him. So I think anger goes hand in hand with this. Are you an angry, unforgiving, bitter person? If you're a Christian, that should not be the case. Set aside all bitterness. Set aside all of that and put on gospel love, okay? Well, thanks so much for listening today. I hope that has been helpful. Next week, where are we going next week? Ooh, John 7 through 10. John 7 through 10. I'm thinking what I might want to talk about in that. Probably chapter 10. Probably verses 30 and 31. That's what I'm thinking. All right, maybe we'll go there. Yeah, I think we will. I'll catch you next week. Thanks for joining me, and uh, God bless.